Well, thank you all so much for coming. I'm Laura Renz with the Cato Institute, and today we'll be talking about Stuart Anderson's new paper, Answering the Critics of Comprehensive Immigration Reform. There are copies up front, it looks like this, and we can always get people extra copies if you need them. Stuart's recently released analysis will serve as a backdrop of our discussion. He'll be our first speaker, and we're very pleased to have Frank Sherry from America's Voice with us here as well. I'll give you a little bit of background on both speakers and then hand the podium over to them. Stewart is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and executive director of the National Foundation for American Policy. He previously served as executive associate commissioner for the policy and planning and counselor to the commissioner at the Immigration and Naturalization Service. He also worked on Capitol Hill on the Senate Immigration Subcommittee. In a prior role at Cato, Stewart was the director of trade and immigration studies, where he wrote on military contributions of immigrants as well as the role of immigrants in high technology. Frank Sherry is the founder and executive director of America's Voice, which he began in early 2008 in an effort to focus on communications and media as part of a renewed effort to win comprehensive immigration reform. Prior to heading America's Voice, Frank served as executive director of the National Immigration Forum, one of the nation's leading immigration policy organizations for 17 years. His work on immigration reform legislation with the late Senator Kennedy is featured in a 12-part HBO documentary. And he's also appeared on a host of TV networks as a regular contributor on the Huffington Post. And with that, I will turn the podium over to Stuart. Great. Well, thank you. Um, thank you very much. And thank you to, Kate for, to uh, Cato and Stu for publishing the paper. Um, I'm going to just briefly go through uh, some of the highlights of the paper and then um, talk about uh, some of the implications uh, as we uh, as we move forward in the in the in this Congress, uh, essentially the the point of the sure. Essentially, the point of the paper was to um, see where it might be possible to bridge some of the division on immigration in the country uh, by looking at five of the main arguments used against having some type of comprehensive immigration reform legislation. So I'm going to get right into what some of those arguments are and what some of the responses are. Um, first, that immigration reform will harm taxpayers. Uh, the argument is essentially that by letting in people uh, or allowing to stay here people who uh, maybe have less skills, that that will be a, a big drain on, on taxpayers. But again, we, what we need to look at here is to compare the status quo to what a change in policy would be, not some type of ideal, ideal world as if we were starting from scratch. And what we have now is roughly 10 to 11 million people in the country illegally. What past research has shown, uh, particularly when we looked at the 1986 uh, amnesty, is that when people were legalized, they had pretty sharp increases in their income and in their salaries. Uh, by being legal, it gave them, uh, it made it easier for them to go seek out another opportunity, uh, which made them less likely to be exploited. Uh, it also uh, gives them more incentive to invest in their own skills. So that would also increase their ability to earn more money. And also to the extent that uh, people are, are getting paid off the books or under the table, um, it's more likely that um, they would get paid in a way that their contributions would get in the tax system. So simply put, if you put it all together, uh, people who uh, are now in illegal status 
uh, if they start having higher wages, more mobility, and we're more likely to, to be paid in the formal economy, are more likely to we're more much more likely to see increases in tax revenue than we would to see decreases in tax revenue. Um, the other the other part of that though is that is that by having uh, is to accompany uh, legalizing people in the country. You also need to look at you know how what are we going to do to prevent this from just happening again where you'd have more p people coming in illegally, and and then one of the the main proposals has always been, has been and Cato Institute has, has argued this strongly is having a a way for people to come in legally particularly in lower end jobs. Uh, if there's one thing you, you remember from this talk, uh, it's hopefully this. When people say that people should just wait in line to come in and work, there is no line. There is no line to come in and work at lower skilled jobs. The only possibility uh, for someone who's in another country to come in and work at lower skilled jobs in the United States in a legal fashion is for short term uh, seasonal work, either in agriculture or say in resorts. Um, and come for summer, work for a few months and, and go back. Um, for people who are looking, uh, who have what they consider dire economic situations, uh, and, they, and there's employers that want to hire them in the United States, uh, there essentially is no legal way for them to do that under our under under our current system. Uh, the best they could hope for is if they had a relative here, and who sponsored them, maybe in five or six or ten years, depending on their category, they might be able to come into the country legally. But for all practical purposes, there is not really a a, a line for people to get into. So um, there's been some past Cato research on this question, and I won't go into all the the economic. Uh, analysis of it, but essentially um, the, the previous research had showed that if you were able to have a system where people are able to come in legally uh, through, through legal visas versus a regime that we have today or even a tighter regime of tighter border enforcement, the, the net wealth benefit for U.S. households uh, would, would be about a $260 billion difference each year, $260 billion difference. Um, so when you combine it with that it's going to be easier and more likely that people earn higher wages to have more tax payments, combined with the idea that you would have uh, people who come in legally uh, versus a, a regime of tighter enforcement, having a greater net welfare benefit for the United States uh, and, and families, um, you see that the argument that that harming taxpayers is not a is not a real realistic argument in this case. Related to this, and it, it, this touches on both taxes and sort of some cases a moral argument, is that new legalized immigrants will burden the welfare argument, but, uh, excuse me, will burden the welfare roles. This is essentially the second argument that, that's addressed in the paper. Again, we don't really see that this is, you know, the problem that people think it is. Um, it is very, very difficult when you come into the country legally, uh, except we make some exception for refugees. Uh, generally, you're, you're at least five years in the country before you're eligible to have uh, access to federal means-tested, uh, what we would call welfare programs. Um, the rates actually, to the extent that it even was an issue before 1996, we saw, we saw the, the, the statistics show there was quite a bit of a decrease in, in welfare use after 96, very large drops. And even today, when you're looking at um, 
for U.S. citizens uh, for the main cash program, AFDC or TANF. Um, for U.S. citizens, it's essentially you know about one percent for individuals that use uh, that use AFTC or, or, or TANF, which is a, kind of the cash welfare program, and it's a, it's basically the same for non for non citizens as well. Uh, it's less it's less than one percent. Um, food stamps, you're looking at very similar, uh, about seven point seven percent for natives, and about six point two percent for non-citizens and 3.9% for naturalized citizens. And this comes from the House, House Ways and Means Committee. Now, there, it is possible that some states have more generous policies, uh, although the data on migration does not show that people, that, that, that immigrants are, are more likely to be flowing to, to some of those, to those states. Uh, and it's also possible for, for a family with an immigrant head of household to have a, uh, native-born child who would be eligible for benefits. Uh, so there are, so, so that would complete the picture that there are, it is possible for other people to get benefits, um, you know, through, through the U.S.-born child. But on the other hand, um, we also need to remember a couple other things, that the U.S. native-born child, it's very hard to have a calculation that's fair if you're only going to count the cost of a child, uh, U.S. native-born child, when the child is young. But no, but no, not count their tax contributions uh, when they when they grow up and start being net contributors. Um, I don't know about you, but I think most of us were drains on our parents when, when we were young, and I think it's the case in general that when you um, you know that that when you do a calculation that only looks at kids as costs and not count them as as contributor society as when they're adults, that's going to be somewhat uh, misleading as well. And that doesn't even get into the issue that the way our social security system is is structured, that new workers are huge are huge hugely important to uh, helping to fund our, our social security system. Now, a third argument that's also made is that another amnesty will be get more amnesties. In other words, by having by having uh, by allowing uh, people to gain legal status, that that'll just encourage an endless flow of of, uh, of illegal immigration. And it mostly was looked at as the 1986 Act, where we, we, we did provide an amnesty, and then what happened, we eventually, illegal immigration came back, um, you know, very relatively quickly. Well, there's two, two issues with that. First of all, there's been some research um, that's looked at looked at this issue. Uh, Madeline Zavodny, for example, um, an economist, has looked at this and basically did not see that you could see a discernible difference in sort of illegal entry before and after the, the 1986 Act. But but really the main issue is that the, the failure of the 1986 Act wasn't that it offered amnesty. The, the reason that illegal immigration increased is because there was no legal way uh, put in place for people to come in and work at particularly the lower skilled jobs. So really what you ended up doing was put in uh, harsher uh, enforcement penalties and, and started some of the increases in enforcement personnel, but you didn't allow the more market-oriented, uh, intelligent way of dealing with, with, uh, with illegal entry, which was to have ways for people to come in and work legally. Uh, I mean, related, related to this argument, uh, 
is the question of what would constitute an amnesty. I mean, generally speaking, an amnesty would be that you don't have any obligations. Uh, but there are ways to structure any sort of legislation in which you would put obligations on people. The ag jobs legislation, for example, uh, related to agricultural workers, uh, requires a certain amount of work, continued work, in, in a, a quasi-temporary status for a number of years. Um, in addition, um, other other legislation is, has required fines that could that would have to be that would have to be paid. Again, those goes beyond go beyond the typical uh, when some when there's such things as tax amnesty and other types of things. Generally speaking, you do not necessarily uh, have fines. People may want to say that no matter what, they aren't going to. Uh, except the fact that someone was once in legal status should be allowed to be, uh, once in illegal status should be allowed to legal, legal status. But again, that's not, uh, if you, that, that's not necessarily the way we've worked in the United States, that, that there's been no way for people to ever have some type of correction uh, of their situation if, if, there, if there's a way to do it, particularly within a legal framework that would really benefit that would benefit the country by allow particularly a system where you allow more people as part of a compromise to allow more people to come in and work and work legally, which would have a lot of benefits in terms of decreasing illegal immigration uh, and also helping with security because you'd be able to focus more on actual threats at the border. Now, another argument that's made is that legalizing or admitting more unskilled workers will undermine U.S. culture and the English language. But the basic response to that is that we really don't see that when you look at the children of immigrants uh, that they're not learning English. Uh, by the third generation, you're, you're looking at 97% uh, um, of Hispanic immigrants report uh, ability to speak well or pretty well. When there's been surveys done of, of, um, of Hispanic immigrants uh, asking whether they think it's important to learn English in order to get along in the United States. Uh, it's overwhelming. It's well over 90, 90% say that it's much more important to learn English than to be retaining your, your Spanish language. And in fact, um, other research by Rumboldt and others has showed that, uh, that uh, one of the potential problems that's happening with how strong of an Americanizing influence our, our culture has is that, um, is that by the third generation, kids who would actually benefit from being able to retain uh, their native language uh, actually end up losing it and are not able to speak it. Uh, and they would actually be beneficial given that they would be able to retain that language given the, the global nature of, of our economy. Um, so the final argument is sort of the typical I think for more than 100 years argument uh, about that if you let more people in, that that's going to mean more unemployment for, for native-born people. We basically just, just haven't seen that. There's been studies done by Richard Vedder and others at the state level that shows that there's no correlation between uh, increased immigration at the state level and, and unemployment rates uh, for, for uh, overall. Same thing at the federal level. Um, we just don't see it. I mean, the reason is that there, there there's not a fixed number of jobs. So if someone gets, if someone's a new entry to the labor force, uh, whether it's an immigrant or say a high school or college graduate, uh, they're going to become employed, they're going to spend money uh, from, from their salary, that's gonna help percolate through the economy, that's gonna create other jobs. People, there's also entrepreneurship, immer, entrepreneurships where, where immigrants are very, very um, 
likely to create new businesses and, and that creates that creates other jobs as well and you're also filling in niches in the economy um, which is very likely to to increase our productivity which is, which is something that uh, Giovanni Perry and other economists has found that you see increases in in, in productivity from from immigration um, so again we don't see that uh, that, that, that by letting more people in legally or by having some political compromise for people who are already here, that that would be an increase in, uh, an increase in unemployment. So I'm going to uh, wrap up here with a, with a short uh, civics quiz, since we have some of the leading experts on government uh, sitting in the audience here. I'll, I'll ask a, a quick, uh, quick put a quick multiple choice question uh, together here for people. If a government program is ineffective and unsuccessful, what normally happens to that program? Is the answer A, funding is decreased for that program? Is the answer B, the program is eliminated? Or is the answer C, funding for that program is increased dramatically? What do we think? C, do we think C is the answer? Well, you are right. Because that is essentially what has happened with our immigration program, as I would call it, our enforcement program. We have, um, starting in 1980, there were 2,900 Border Patrol agents. By 1994, there were 4,000 Border Patrol agents. By 2000, there were 9,000 Border Patrol agents. Does anyone know what the figure is today? 20,000 uh, Border Patrol agents. Um, funding uh, on immigration enforcement as a you know across programs has essentially doubled since just since 2004. Um, what we see is that the current policy is not effect has not been effective. Um, and what we see, although, but what we see again, as the answer C shows, is that the answer has not been to try something different, uh, which is to have a legal valve for people to come in and work legally, the answer has been to just keep spending more and more money essentially on the same thing. Um, I hope some of the um, some of the facts presented in the paper uh, help us continue and in, in, uh, on a path where we can um, think about no longer having a policy where we simply just keep spending more money on the same policies that really have not worked. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. My name again is Frank Sherry with a group called America's Voice. Um, Stuart has done uh, a, a very capable and admirable job of laying out the facts of this debate. He has been one of the top thinkers and researchers and indeed policymakers on this controversial and complex uh, area for many years. And I have to say, um, it's really nice to be back working with the Cato Institute. It's great to see Dan Griswold, who leads this effort for Cato on trade and immigration studies and has also done some brilliant writing and research on this. Um, you know, back in the day, uh, comprehensive immigration reform was much more of a, a bipartisan effort. Uh, there, were, there was a time in 2006 when the so-called McCain-Kennedy bill got 23 Republican Senate rep senators to vote for it. Uh, just to give you a slight contrast, in December of last year, when a much smaller measure called the DREAM Act 
was presented, only three Republican senators voted for it. So there's been a real shift. I, I, I sometimes wonder, I, I now am much more firmly planted on the left. For those of you who don't know and are trying to place me, let me come clean. Um, but I sometimes think that I didn't leave bipartisanship, it left me. So I'd like to get back to a place where we're trying to figure out, because ultimately I, I think the populists on the right and the left um, are not a majority, and that there is a, uh, a sensible, centrist, compromise approach that could actually solve the problem and end illegal immigration. Now, one of the reasons why the facts don't always penetrate this debate is because there's such a different fundamental diagnosis of the problem. Many of us who support comprehensive immigration reform see immigrants as decent people who are trying to make better lives for their families and add value and growth to America. And others see immigrants, particularly those who enter the United States or remain in the United States illegally, as bad people. So right from the start, is it basically good people subjected to a bad system, or is it basically bad people subjected to sacred law? Now, I'm big on the rule of law. Don't get me wrong. I'm so big on the rule of the law that I'm glad our founding fathers created legislatures to change laws when they are no longer working. And that's what those of us who support comprehensive immigration reform want to see happen, that Congress fulfill its con constitutional responsibility to modernize our immigration system so that it works better in our national self-interest. So we have a very different diagnosis. The bad people, good law, I would say sacred law crowd, says what we need to do is build more fences, put more government resources into enforcement, and the idea is for the 11 or 12 million, let's say 11 million unauthorized immigrants in the United States, the solution, the only solution can be that they go home. They either get picked up and deported, or they pick up and self-deport. The name that they've given to this strategy is called attrition through enforcement. It's what, for example, Lamar Smith, the head of the House Judiciary Committee, says he's for. And we will see a big debate in this Congress over something called mandatory E-Verify, which is a very technical term for firing as many unauthorized workers as possible in hopes that they pick up and go home. So we're going to see more of the enforcement-only strategy being debated in this Congress. There's others of us who view it differently. Okay, I may be of the left, but I'm a free market Democrat. I believe in free markets. I've seen a labor migration from south of the border to the United States for the last hundred years, and it's picked up with intensity. I'm a realist about these things. You see, a hundred years ago or more in the United States, there was a migration from the rural south to the industrializing north, right? That was one of the great labor migrations of the last couple hundred years. The same phenomenon has been happening in the last 25 years. It's picked up and now with the recession it's slowed down, but it will pick up again when growth picks up, is that you have people from the rural south of the border coming to the new immigrant states in the south and in the mountain west in particular, as well as the traditional gateway cities looking for better opportunity. Let me give you an example. Mecklenburg County, where Charlotte, North Carolina is. During the boom times, when their unemployment rate was 3%, nine out of the 10 new workers coming into North Carolina were Mexican. And you know how many of them came legally? Very few. Do you know how many of them could have come legally if they wanted to? Very few. Because as Stuart points out, there was no line to get into. 
but there were jobs aplenty in Charlotte during the construction boom. And while the Chamber of Commerce materials on the Charlotte boom didn't include this dirty little secret, the fact is, is that everyone in town knew what was happening. That's called supply and demand. The only sucking sound that we've heard in the last 25 years has been bringing workers to jobs in the United States because they were available and they were going begging. Now obviously that's changed with the Great Recession. But this is a temporary bump in what is a hundred year story of people moving to opportunity. And the question is for us is not how do we stop a process which leads, as Stuart points out, to more workers, more consumers, bigger tax base, higher wages. How do we regulate that? This is where my democratic instincts kick in. How do you regulate it in a way that it's controlled, that it's orderly, and that, yes, you take off the rough edges of it? I'm not for open borders. I'm for controlled, orderly immigration that serves the national interest. Now, here's the choice that policymakers have, given the facts, given the reality, given the fact that we have 11 million unauthorized immigrants in the United States, given the fact that 70% of them live in families and 66% of them have been here for more than a decade. This is not a bunch of folks who showed up last week hanging out on street corners, although there are those folks. This is mostly a rooted, family-based, hardworking community. Now what? Now what? Well, if the goal that we can all agree on is to end illegal immigration, then what's the best solution? The attrition through enforcement folks say, if we just ramp up enforcement as we have for the last 20 years, another 10 or 20 years, we will rid ourselves of most of these people. They will pick up and go home if we don't pick them up and deport them. Others of us say, well, we have a different approach. Why don't we use enforcement at the border, use enforcement against illegal hiring and open up wider legal channels for workers who want to come here on a temporary or a permanent basis and deal realistically and humanely with non-criminal unauthorized immigrants who are rooted in American society. That's what comprehensive immigration reform is. It's not a either or, it's both and. It's enforcement and legal channels so that we create a legal system, we end the black market in migration that serves only the smugglers and the bad actor employers and the folks who break the law and bring it under a regulatory regime that in fact makes sure that there's a line to get into, that people come with the same labor rights as any other worker, that decent employers are not being undercut by unscrupulous subcontractors, and we add to the tax base a legal system that grows the economy that's fairer and creates greater growth. So when people say, oh, you guys are open borders and don't want control, I say, wait a minute. You think the other guys who think we're going to drive 11 million hardworking people who have been here, most of them for longer than a decade, live in families out of the country, you think that's realistic? You think that's going to end illegal immigration or is it just going to drive people further underground? You hear about the Arizona law, very controversial. The proponents say a lot of people left Arizona. You know where they went? Utah. They went to New England. They've, they've gone to Colorado, which is why, by the way, Utah had a very different take on what to do. They said, we have 110,000 unauthorized immigrants here who are working hard. Maybe we should figure out a way to have them come into the system. They pay a fine. It's not a free pass. They have to pass a background check. They have to pay their taxes. 
but they can work here legally because they're valuable contributors. It's a very different approach. So that's what we're up against. It's a highly charged issue, as you know. Uh, but I think that um, inevitably, comprehensive immigration reform will become the law of the land at some time. I wanted it to happen in 2006 and 2007 when George W. Bush spent whatever political capital he had left on his last great fight. And I still think he's a hero for doing it, even though he's not my kind of president. But he had the chutzpah and the guts to do it. So, you know, it's going to take what it takes, but I'm pretty convinced that the forces of, uh, that, that are driving this uh, phenomenon are going to lead to reform. Demographic, economic, and political forces are going to lead to reform. We have an aging society, and unlike in Europe, because immigrants want to come here, we have a, a, a population that is sustained. In China, in Italy, in Germany, they're having debates. We don't want immigrants. Our, our young couples aren't having babies. What do we do? Well, in China, they want to have babies. They're just told not to. <laughs> so demographically, immigration is a lifeblood to America and one of our competitive assets going forward. Economically, I know that people love to think about the static pie. But as Stuart points out so brilliantly, the fact is, is that we live in a dynamic economy. There's a reason why, to put it in blunt terms, we attract Indian high-tech workers and Mexican low-skilled workers. It's because they complement rather than substitute for American workers. In fact, they add to the dynamism and creativity and growth of the American society. I mean, um, think of all of the people in my generation two uh, a married couple, both with postgraduate degrees, who have an army of immigrants making their two-income lifestyle possible. That is the, it's a, it's a, it's a, perhaps a human example of the complementarity that we see in so many ways. So, um, and then finally, politically. I mean, boy, you know, I used to get uh, criticized on the left a lot for being supportive of a policy that might make John McCain the next president and would make George Bush a hero for Latinos for a generation. Um, I, I, I wish I was still getting criticized on the left for being willing to do it, because right now it's just the other way. I mean, the Republican Party, I think, is committing slow motion political suicide by alienating the fastest growing group of new voters. Latinos are what we often talk about, but it's Latinos and Asians and South Asians and Caribbean and, 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 and Africans and folks in the Middle East. The Republican Party under George W. Bush was fabulously competitive with those uh, ethnic communities and immigrant communities, and now it's not. Now it's not. Not the Democrats have earned the vote by any stretch. Don't get me started on them. But Republicans keep pushing them away. It makes the Democrats' job very easy. So I just think that eventually the Republican Party will come back to its free market uh, principles, will realize that immigration properly regulated serves our interests economically, and that politically it's smarter to reach out and compete for votes than to try to make the, the, those people know that you don't want them and you want to send their loved ones home. At least that's my hope. Let's, and if, if you're with me on this, let's try to make it happen in a matter of years, not decades. Thank you. Well, great. Thank you both so much. And we certainly have time for some questions from the audience if anyone has any questions. Can we just stay here? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, sir. 
Mr. Chair, you mentioned the Indian high-tech workers. Would, would you approve or refer to any, any uh, uh, farm actor who gets a master's degree in the United States and has never done anything illegally under the immigration system would get an automatic green card? Yes. I do, too. <laughs> it's concise. I like it. Yes, ma'am. Um, first uh, comment and question on having worked in the field as a clinician and on the streets with many illegal and legal immigrants, not only Latinos, uh, you know, it's Ghani and people from other countries. Um, and we keep hearing that we can't find the people in this country to do the low level jobs that you talk about, yet we want Bill Gates staff that's thinking we can't have enough educated people in this country work for him. I think you have to look at the cultural issues involved with a lot of the Mexican Latinos who come to Washington State who used to live hard and work on a farm and then go back. So there is a cultural issue in this country where the black community do the work that you say the low level work won't do because it's, it's buzzword for slavery. And I, I've learned that people culture the groups I've worked with as a clinician. My question is, um, and I have mixed feelings about this, because I, you know, in my apartment building where I live, where a lot of, they do get welfare, a lot of them. They have their kids, they work hard, they're not legal, their kids are getting, and they are, food stamps, TANF, the Medicaid, you name it. That is part of the equation. So what, what do you think, I think that the law, the regulation, whatever you want to call it, <coughs> is shortened so that if Bill Gates says, I can't find people who work for me, he gets them over here with a green card. If the lower level folks who come here, and then we send them back to the border, you know, because they're hardworking, you know, the 5% of the crimes, what would you do to make, like you mentioned, Utah or other states, or get such a divided Congress the jungle board and start thinking outside the box to make some of this happen. Thank you. Um, well, I think the, um, I mean, I think one of the things that we didn't get into before, neither Frank nor I really, we both talked about how illegal immigration policy has not been effective and how we've actually seen the numbers of illegal immigrants increase dramatically from maybe around 4 million uh, more than a decade ago to over 10 or 11 million. And even though we saw somewhat of a drop during the, the recent recession, I think that those numbers, I think uh, recent numbers from Pew, it basically showed they stabilized. Um, and really what's happened is, is when we've increased the, the Border Patrol and, and other assets, there has been, it hasn't been totally ineffective. I think that would be misleading. I mean, I think there has been an effect. But really what it's done is raise the cost to entry. And by raising the cost to entry, what's happened is once people make it across the border, they make a calculation about whether do I want to go back and forth like we used, to, like they used to years years before, or if people used to do years before, work for a while and then go, you know, earn some money and go back home, or once I'm here, am I going to stay here? And, and, and try to, because I'm more likely to get caught or, or there's over 300 deaths a year trying to cross into the United States. And so, and so what we really did with our policies inadvertently, of course, is create what used to be much more of a temporary or circular flow and make it much more uh, a permanent group of people who, and that's why you saw the numbers go from 4 million, say, over up to 10 million. 
So, so some, some of the things you're talking about, I think a number of these people, or, or at least future people, would be much more interested in, in a legal way to come in, work for a period of time, and then go back. Um, you wouldn't, there wouldn't be any benefits attached to, you know, to this kind of temporary you know, work. Now, I think you'd want to have some portion of them. You'd want to have some way for some portion to get uh, a permanent status. That would actually keep illegal immigration down as well. You know, people who work out very well for an employer having a, having a chance to, to sponsor them in, in, in some way. But, but I think a lot of the, the, the issues that people see would, would go away if you're allowed this sort of, this sort of circular flow to, to, take, to, to go into effect. Now, getting Congress to do that, I think generally speaking, you, it's been felt that you needed some sort of left-right compromise where the Democrats were much more interested in, in dealing with the people already here. And, and and at least some Republicans in the past particularly have been more interested in what do we do about preventing future illegal immigration by having some sort of temporary, you know, visa uh, regime. Um, that's where things, have kind of the debate hasn't really progressed past that. Well, I mean, that's an interesting... Uh, question. I mean, Utah has, has passed this. I mean, there would be a way potentially for the Obama administration to allow some of what Utah is doing. They could uh, do a, kind of a wide-scale deferred action, for example, in which they, they basically say we're not going to prosecute people uh, or pursue people who have gone through a certain process in, in Utah. Uh, but, you know, that certainly would, would be controversial. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no question. In fact, Stewart's done some of the groundbreaking research on uh, what's now largely discredited Bracero program. But in fact, what he's lifted up is that the Bracero program worked to have a legal and orderly flow of workers to this country. And what happened is that when it ended, there was no line to get into, and the workers kept coming because there was still a demand for their labor. And so the the origins of modern you know, in our generation, illegal immigration came really with the end of a functioning program that allowed uh, what are the academics sometimes called sojourners. What's interesting is that, as Stuart points out, that some of the sojourners, I'm sure you found this in your clinical work, become settlers. They're just the same people at different stages. Some people go make their nest egg, start a business back home, perfect. Others maybe marry, maybe have a kid, whatever, and they start to settle. But it seems to me we could fashion a policy to accommodate both of those eventualities and do so in a way that would be regulated, but at the same time would save the agricultural industry in this country. I mean, look, I mean, we're going to have a debate about this mandatory E-Verify in this Congress. It's going to be pushed by Republicans, and it's literally going to threaten the perishable crop industry in this country. It's an existential threat. They rehire all the time. And everyone knows that, I mean, some estimates say 60%. The best estimates I've seen are 90% of the workforce in the perishable crop industry are unauthorized workers. So you're talking about, you've seen it in Washington, it's in California, but it's all over. The fact is, is that Mandatory E-Verify for new hires is going to, as Craig Ruggelberg of the agricultural industry says, it's going to end up with us importing food and exporting jobs. And not just the jobs that are filled currently by unauthorized workers, but by the three to four jobs that are related 
in the agricultural industry, usually filled by native-born workers. Um, or illegal uh, immigrant workers. So, so we're talking about a whole regions of the country being threatened by a House Republican initiative based on the ideology that we can somehow force these people out of the country because anything less than that is going to be called the A, branded the A word. Um, I just think that's very unfortunate. Um, and I, I hope that we, uh, this debate that's coming up will lift up the agricultural industry. My friends in the United Farm Worker, uh, union. They started a project. Sorry, I'm filibustering here, but I'm so worked up about this. Uh, they started a program. It started from some of their members. They were so tired of hearing, oh gosh, you know, these immigrants are taking our jobs. And so a couple of farm worker union members said in Spanish at one of their meetings, why don't we invite any American who wants to come take our job to come take it and we'll train them. And they started a campaign called Take Our Jobs. They had seven, they had thousands and thousands of inquiries uh, of people, the, the website, they promoted it, Stephen Colbert even promoted it, so it got wide play. Of all the people who they contacted them, seven native-born workers are now doing those jobs. Right? I mean, this is, this is tough work, and it's skilled work. And, and I'm not saying that Americans can't do it. It's that they mostly don't want to do that. It's, more, it's as much a status thing as a pay thing, right? Because the pay is 12 to 16 bucks an hour. The living conditions are tough. So, um, uh, so, but, but my point is, is that um, we just have to get realistic about that reality. Now, we can say, fine, we'll just drive agriculture out of business and out of the country. But I don't know that that's really such a smart that is in our economic self-interest or in our security interest. Thank well, you. Oh, sorry. I, I know there used to be, um, I know there, were, there was a member of Congress that used to go and work a different job in his district on a regular basis. Maybe that program could be expanded to agriculture for members of, <laughs> members of Congress to, to pitch in and help out. It you know. wouldn't last the day. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, sir. Uh, thank, thanks for the presentation. So, so it sounds like there's a solid base of research uh, in economics showing that immigration is a, is a benefit to the United States, or a break-even or a marginal benefit. I think there's been a long series of studies showing the economic benefits of immigration. Uh, but it seems like, you know, my own view is that the major block is, is cultural. You know, it's, it's people's concerns. Regardless of if it's economically beneficial or not, there's a concern among the American public, which is reflected in the Republican Party and in among some Democrats, there's a major concern about people from another place crossing in uncontrolled and changing communities in ways that people don't feel comfortable with. So I'm just wondering what you thought about that and that's, you know, how you would address that. I mean, I think that I think that's true. That there, there is, there is, for obviously for a very long period of time, there's always been these cultural issues. Um, but I do think there's actually, I think more recently, I think one of the big dividing lines has been legal versus illegal. And I think the fact, I, I don't, I, I don't think people would have the same, uh, and I don't think they do have the same hostility. Uh, uh, to sort of having a, a system where people who come in legally and work and fill jobs versus now what they see is people coming in illegally breaking the law 
and and that's where I think a lot of the hostility is created. I don't think it's purely um, that they don't like the look of, of people. I really think that there's a much bigger, and I've seen some polling data where they've asked, for example, uh, what do you think about illegal Im immigration? And it's a you know, two to one negative. Uh, and then if, if they ask what about you know, the impact of legal immigrants on, on the state, and um, this was done in California, and it was you know, two or three to one you know, positive. So, um, so I, I think I think the illegal legal line is really what's what's happened more recently. Maybe as much as, and maybe there's a culture element that's that's tied into that. Yeah, I used to think that, <laughs> but I think I'm starting to worry about how much culture is uh, influencing and driving this debate. And I think, and I'm not talking about, you know, the people who write those awful comments at the end of newspaper articles, you know, the, the racist screeds that you sometimes read. I think it's much more of a, a discomfort, uh, a fear. You know, I've been working in this area for a long time. It, it, when I think about, you know, California had an eruption over immigration in the early 1990s, and it was kind of at a demographic tipping point. It was just before the demographic tipping point. Now that it's past that demographic tipping point, um, when you ask in polls, the field poll in California asks, are you in favor of giving uh, illegal immigrants a path to, to citizenship? It's 90%. It's like it's over. But it doesn't surprise me that in Arizona, where they're getting close to that demographic tipping point, they had an eruption uh, over the last few years. And it's not at all surprising to me that in the new immigrant states of the South, that they're starting to have their eruption. So I do think, and, and I don't want to be that critical of it. I, I more, more want to try to understand it, that there's kind of a, uh, an unconscious, perhaps, but, but real fear that something's being lost when you know, the evidence is, and this is where Stuart's absolutely right, the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, you don't, you don't have kids growing up in America <laughs> in immigrant households, even if their parents don't speak a word of English or never got past the sixth grade, you know, saying anything but, you know, oh, God, I'm so embarrassed by my parents. They want to lose their Spanish, for example, and they, you know, they, and if they keep it, it's, they're lucky because they can talk to, to, to their mom and dad, but outside with their friends and with their siblings, they speak English, and they are so Americanized so quickly. I mean, how could you not be in this country? It's just, so, so, so the reality is not one of cultural separatism, you know, demands for bilingualism, you know, this you know, sort of ethnic uh, 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 separatist movements of any kind. Quite the contrary, assimilation is alive and well. But I think the fear is something that um, is real. I'm not sure how we address that. The good news is that polling shows that when immigrants first move into an area, the negativity goes up. And af over time, it goes way down, which suggests that familiarity breeds uh, community rather than contempt. So I, I, I actually think that the fact that immigration is now a 50-state phenomenon rather than a, say, 10-city phenomenon, as it was a generation ago, suggests that we may go through some very tough times, but that this cultural uh, unease, like so many times in our history, will give way to kind of a, a, a sense of community that um, is not always easy, but uh, is often dynamic. Yes, sir. Um, Kind of along those same lines, um, discussing some of the cultural things. From what I've looked into, it, it seems to me that the problems with the descendants of illegal immigrants are the exact opposite problem. That 
the immigrants themselves face, namely that even though their language is, you know, they have great English and all these kinds of things, um, there's a lot of problems with high dropout rates and high crime rates among the descendants of illegal immigrants, although not among the immigrants themselves. And I feel like this is an area that needs to be investigated more. Um, it, it's somewhat difficult to investigate, um, but what exactly are their, their descendants doing? And how would immigration reform impact the way that their descendants grow up and, and live? And I don't know if you have any um, comments specifically on how you think immigration reform would change or adjust that situation or not. Well, I mean, I guess I would just say briefly, to the extent that, that parents are able to more fully participate in society and, and earn higher wages, that's going to benefit, uh, that's going to benefit the kids. And I think, you know, I mean, there's been a significant number of uh, crime studies that show that the crime rates are, are not higher among the, the immigrants or their kids. Um, there is uh, a socioeconomic lag factor with some groups of immigrants, say Latino immigrants in particular. Uh, and the question is whether that will, you know, like Italians at the turn of the last century gets resolved in, say, three generations rather than getting resolved in one generation, as it often is for some other groups, um, uh, or not. And uh, the evidence, you know, Gregory Rodriguez, who, who's looked at this very carefully, sh shows that through intermarriage and uh, home ownership, uh, uh, citizenship, uh, English language acquisition, et cetera, uh, that the indices of of assimilation over two to three generations are very promising and very good. But there is that socioeconomic lag that I think raises questions, uh, uh, you know, are people going to make it or not? Uh, we're optimistic based on the evidence, but there's, you know, a fair number of folks that are still in that first and 1.5 generation, and we'll have to see how they turn out. Yes, ma'am. with having to pay fines and taxes because it's been well documented that a lot of times there are people that go along with some people aren't even paid. Yeah. Well, uh, kind of two questions. Let me ask you to answer your second one first, which is um, uh, most employers are decent in America, uh, but there are bottom feeders who undercut them and take advantage of workers. They deliberately seek out immigrants without papers so they can take advantage of. They pay off the books, they don't pay their taxes, and they undercut their decent competitors. Think of a two sub two contractors bidding for a piece of work. One pays taxes and decent wages and even benefits, and the other doesn't. And they can underbid the other uh, contractor in a way that's terribly unfair. So we're all for going after bad actor employers. Um, and in the context of reform, we think not only do you want to go after bad actor employers, but you want to uh, you want to reduce illegal hiring through employment verification. But if you do that, which is what quite frankly, the debate's going to be about in this Congress. If you do this mandatory E-Verify without legalizing the workforce, these people don't go home. They go underground. And it makes all the situations worse. Less taxes, more unfair competition, more people standing on street corners, more unscrupulous subcontractors, lower wages. And um, I just think that makes a bad situation worse. So yes, 
go after bad employers, mandate employment verification in the context of comprehensive reform that make sure the workforce here is legal and that there's legal channels for people coming in the future. That's the holistic fix that will actually put immigration on a legal footing. Utah, you know, we've been very positive about it. Um, you know, honestly, I, if Congress is going to continue to be paralyzed, I, I just might say, you know, I, I, I agree with President Obama on this. We don't want 50-state patchwork of different policies. On the other hand, if we have the status quo or worse for the next 20 years, I might change my mind on that. Now, you'd need probably authorizing legislation, you know, kind of the welfare reform model of, you know, states do have the authority. I don't see that happening, quite frankly. And I think any attempt by states is probably going to get gummed up in the courts, whether it's enforcement or, or the more, you know, the legal channel oriented work. But I love that Utah had the guts, a ruby red state, to say, we're going to do something different. We're going to, we're going to in, in, help with enforcement. We're going to help with legal channels in the future. We're going to keep families together and we're going to value our uh, workers here without papers. It's a state version of what we want on the federal version. And I think it was a real, at the very least, it was a very strong message to both parties that your inaction in Washington is going to lead to more of this unless you get off your, uh, 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 your uh, you know. <laughs> uh, one, one thing that would, ad would address what you're, what you're talking about in terms of exploitation is, is uh, it's not in this paper, but I have a, a book on, on, on immigration where I have a little part there you talk about one of the solutions is to possibly have a, a U.S.-Mexico like bilateral agreement where essentially in exchange for Mexican Mexico giving help on enforcement at the border, um, the U.S. would set up a system of, of work permits uh, setting an annual total, and those work permits would be would be fully portable. So if someone had a work permit that allowed them to work uh, pretty much you know in any type of job, um, they would have you know pretty similar labor rights. To the, to, to the rest of us have, and that's really one of the best uh, guardians of, of not being exploited and that you're able, if you don't like where you're working, you can go work somewhere else. Yes, sir. Um, I'm from the state of Arizona, but I go to school in Utah, so I have a perspective of kind of uh, places. Um, you talked a lot about going forward, especially with national um, immigration reform, but from a lot of people that I've spoken to in Arizona, they regret even those that supported immigration reform, what they had done. What do you think Arizona should do now as a state rather than wait for the, the national status quo? Yeah, I'll let you take that. <laughs> Happy to tell Arizona what to do, um, since I've been telling it where to go for the last two years. Um, now, uh, you know, I thought it was very interesting this year that the hardliners in the state, led by the head of the state center, a man named Russell Pierce, um, came up with a new package of really tough anti-immigration laws. And what happened is that the business community stood up and said, are you crazy? 60 CEOs in the state wrote to every state Republican legislator and said, haven't we done enough to hurt our state? Please cease and desist. And they did. It was a remarkable turnabout because the economic impact to Arizona has been quite severe. The loss of tourism and convention dollars has been estimated as much as $140 million in the past year. Um, I think Arizona was helped, I know it was controversial and unpopular, helped by the, 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 the judicial decisions stopping most of it from going into effect, because I think if it had it gone into effect, the impact on Arizona's reputation economy would have been worse. Um, 
I, I, I do think at some point it would be wonderful if Arizona would repeal <laughs> um, its law, but I don't expect that to happen. I think, um, I think the courts will continue to stop most of the Arizona law from going into effect. I think it'll stop other states who are looking at copycats if they do it, like Georgia has. Um, uh, I sure wish that this ferment at the state level, though, would somehow urge members of Congress to get in the game. Uh, in Utah, for example, where you go to school, they have two senators, Mike Lee and Orrin Hatch. Orrin Hatch used to be one of our heroes on immigration. He was the co-author of the DREAM Act and he voted against it last year. Why? Because he's scared about uh, the fact that he's got a you know, tough primary season coming up, and he saw what happened to his colleague Bob Bennett. The Mormon Church, LDS, is now advocating quite strongly for Senator Lee, a new senator, to get in the game, and he's saying, you know, no. But I, I, at some point, I'm just hoping that, you know, some Republicans will read Cato Institute's policy recommendations and research and say, you know what? That's who we are as a party, and we should do this. I just think that right now, there's a kind of a populist tail wagging the free market dog in a way that is really unfortunate. Yes. Um, one of the arguments that at least I hear frequently that you mentioned is um, about how one, one of the reasons why we need to have this reform is because a lot of the, the, the low-skilled folks are doing the, the work that Americans are just not willing to do. Are there any economic studies out there that actually show, for example, just how much food prices were to go up if we kicked out all of the undocumented immigrants and needed to raise wages to attract American workers? Like, how much were food prices go up? How much would restaurants have to charge because you don't have uh, the busboys and the waiters and folks uh, take, you know, Accepting uh, such low wages, et cetera, et cetera. How much do, all, how much would all of these sectors um, that rely on these workers, how much would prices have to go up in them? Because maybe that'll actually show what kind of contribution they're making. Um, I don't know that there's a, been studied done exactly that. I mean, because it's a great, you know, there's so many factors that have to take into account. I mean, I, I think one thing that people need to, to keep in mind, I often hear uh, someone will say, well, why don't they just pay higher wages and you attract more workers? But what someone has to understand, if you're an employer, you can't just raise wages, you know, through the roof for you, you, um, because it, you can only pay people what it's still profitable to work so in other words, people, if you had to raise your prices at a restaurant, people not only, you're not only competing f for customers with other restaurants, you're competing with the idea of just staying home and not going to a restaurant at all. And and in agriculture, one of the things that's actually we've, we've already seen is that some, uh, some growers have been leasing land in Mexico. So there's actually, uh, unbelievably, there's a way to outsource even, uh, <laughs> even, even agriculture production. Um, so um, we shouldn't be surprised that when, in this case, it's really getting around uh, government policies or government regulations, that people uh, who feel it's in their, their livelihood, in a legal way, to try to find a way to still, you know, to still operate their business. And it won't necessarily be the way that's most economically beneficial to the United States, but it will be a, a way for them, for people to, you know, continue their businesses. Is this just that the folks who are very 
anti this, they just, they don't get it. They just figure, oh, well, you're just excluding these workers, and because you're paying such low wages, Americans won't do the job, but if you hire legal American workers instead, they don't realize how much the wages would have to go up and how much it would uh, drive how we would drive these agriculturalists out of the country. Well, yeah, we, we and we don't know exactly how much you know the wages, the difference. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes when there's been these raids, we, I think people have been surprised to see that that people who who are considered illegal immigrants are actually making pretty good, um, pretty good wages in in, in some cases. Um, but you know, we we still we still see that it's actually not even it's not economically beneficial to the United States to have people who have a certain amount of education or training take jobs um, just so um, a foreign national doesn't work in those jobs. I mean, that's not really much of a way to live a life, you know. To I mean, people should work in the job that's best best suited to, for them based on the, based on their skills. Um, and it's really not efficient for the economy to have to have people with a master's degree. Uh, you know, you know, working on you know in, for in a lawn service just because we don't want to have other people work in lawn service. I mean, obviously that would be a silly way to try to run an economy. Um, and uh, so, I mean, the best way is obviously for people to work at the skill level you know, that that's most beneficial for them to have a fulfilling career. And and if other people can fill in in niches at other jobs, uh, you know, that's beneficial uh, to them too. Probably have time for one last question, and then uh, and then we can wrap it up. Yes, Dan. I have a question for Stuart. Dan was a student. Well, I'm sorry. What was the name? You've written about the Brazil program that Frank mentioned earlier. Could you talk a little bit about your finding about what to illegal immigration and illegal crossings when we expanded opportunities for legal immigration? just had the case earlier this week of the truck who was entering Guatemala, entering Mexico from Guatemala with 500 people. That's some of the cost of an illegal immigration system. What was the experience with the Bracero program and the expanded opportunities for legal Right. Um, thanks, Dan. That's a, that's a great question because uh, um, Frank alluded to it, but what the research really showed is that what happened is early in the um, early in the 1950s, there was illegal entry going on in the United States, and the the Immigration Service decided to have a, a crackdown. But at the same time, the the INS commissioner at the time, uh, General Swing, uh, went to the growers and said, "I'm going to explain. We're going to expand the opportunities for people to come in legally." through what's called the Bracero program, which is a way for, for Mexican workers to come in and work in agriculture. Uh, essentially what happened is we saw a social science experiment that you've almost, you know, the results of which you almost never see in terms of, uh, you know, cause and effect. Uh, what happened was that that the illegal entry, as measured by apprehensions at the border, uh, decreased from 1953 to 1959 uh, by 95%. In other words, you just saw the number on the chart just goes like this. As the Bracero admissions are going up, the illegal entry is going down. It was getting to a level uh, of apprehensions that if we had that today, I mean, I believe it's under 100,000, uh, there'd be probably cater 
it wouldn't even be having a forum uh, on this topic because it would just be considered almost a non a non issue. Um, it's what what that really showed, even though there were problems with the Bracero program, but that doesn't mean we couldn't you know, we wouldn't operate it. it wouldn't necessarily operate exactly the same way as they did then. But the, but basically the basic concept is that if there's a legal way for people to come in and work, they'll avail themselves of that opportunity rather than uh, enter illegally. And and but there were concerns about the Bracero program. There were union complaints. Uh, the regulations started to get tight, tightened around 1960, and then eventually the program was eliminated altogether uh, by by 1964. Uh, and you saw illegal uh, illegal entry as measured by apprehensions again uh, increased about a thousand percent over the next uh, over the next decade. Uh, and so we got up to the point you know closer to the levels we had uh, you know say five or six years ago. Um, now they, they've gone down a little bit in terms of the uh, the uh, the illegal entry levels, but but essentially the the bottom line is that illegal um, the people who are trying to come in illegally for the most part are trying to come in to work if 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 and they're they're rational if there's a legal way to do it they'll they'll avail themselves of of, of that opportunity uh, if we don't have a legal way for them to do it what we've seen for many many years of experience is that they'll try to come in illegally and then the U.S. spends an awful lot of money and, and, and resources and manpower in trying to, to, to get in the middle of that, uh, of really what are labor market transactions. Great. Well, you can find copies of Stuart's most recent paper as well as Cato's other uh, research and immigration on Cato.org. And I want to thank both of our speakers for coming today. And thank you so much for coming.